If you're just joining us today, let me catch you up on what we've been uh, talking about in these past couple of weeks. Um, Jesus tells us that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all your soul and all your strength. Uh, in other words, that we are to be completely sold out for Jesus, to go all in, to hold nothing back, um, to make Jesus and his kingdom our highest priority in life. In other words, that nothing is off limits to God. We are completely his. And, and, and when, we, when we give up our idea of what the good life looks like, and instead we allow God to write that story for us, that is when we come alive. That is when we come alive. Uh, and a friend of mine has a reputation for being a good man. He's a good man. But recently, uh, he realized that that's not enough to be a good man. Um, that, that he needed to be God's man. And there's a difference. And he made a decision to really just turn his life over to Jesus, to commit no more like one foot in and one foot out. He decided to go all in, and we've just started a really great conversation about what that might look like uh, for him, and so I am so excited. But for the most part, uh, we, we kind of struggle to live that way, right? We struggle to live in this complete surrender to God, and I think one of the reasons for that is we have trouble connecting the Jesus that we read about um, in the scriptures, we have trouble connecting that Jesus with what's happening in our lives right now, right today. Uh, so, so Jesus becomes like an idea or, or maybe a role model. Okay, Jesus is like a role model and the Bible is a source of inspiration and practical wisdom, but that's about it. And God is not truly alive to us. Jesus doesn't really play an active role in our daily lives. At best, he's kind of like this friend that we visit once a week. And this series is an invitation and a challenge to receive God's grace and to enjoy his presence every day. In every moment, God wants to meet you today. And he has things he wants to do in you and through you today. He's speaking to you. He has dreams for you. And perhaps God wants you to, to turn from sin and to turn to Jesus. Maybe God wants to heal you from your past. Maybe, maybe he wants to restore a broken relationship or, or to, to challenge you to get out of your comfort zone and join him in mission. Whatever God wants to do in your life, we want you to have the faith and the courage and the conviction to say yes, and to say it today. In other words, to shorten your response time. To shorten your response time to God's voice. Some people have a response time of years. God's, God speaks to you, and it's like years later that you finally say, all right, okay? And some people that span is like months. For some people that span is days. And, and our prayer for you is that your response time to God's voice is near instantaneous. That you're so in sync with God that when God moves, the moment that God moves, you move. Does that make sense? And we just sang a song about how God is with us in the waiting, but that doesn't mean that God is inactive. Sometimes we are waiting on God, but even in those moments, God has things that he wants to do in our lives. 
And, and so we, the, the verse that we've been centering on for this series is this. Paul writes, as God's co-workers... We urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. The things that God has given you and bestowed upon you through Christ, don't let those things go to waste. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you now, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now that ought to fill us with excitement. Because what God is saying is that you don't have to wait to experience God's favor, God's blessing, God's healing, God's strength. You don't have to wait. That ought to fill us with excitement, with anticipation, with joy. This is, this is not a promise. This is the fulfillment of a promise. This is, this is something that's happening now. Jesus is alive and active and present and moving today. And, it, and let me just say, if you're not moved, if you're not moved by this statement that now is the time of God's favor, now is the day of salvation, then maybe it's because you don't quite know what salvation is, right? At least not in any meaningful way. It's kind of like saying, now is the time of God's flarpenschplatt, right? Now is the time of God's googliamamus. And you're like, good, Right? I think we have to know what salvation is in order for us to be excited about it, right? And so a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned that the, the, the Greek word for salvation in the New Testament is soteria, which means salvation, in other words, uh, your welfare or prosperity, deliverance, preservation, safety, all of those things. Now, we're going to unpack this just a little bit today, okay? Because for many Christians, salvation largely boils down to some kind of escape, right? One day, we're going to leave this world for good. We're going to go to heaven when we die and forever live in some kind of angelic existence, right? That's what they think salvation means. And then those who frame and they understand salvation this way, they think the gospel sounds something like this, right? I am a sinner, and Jesus died for my sins, and I ask Jesus into my heart to forgive my sins so that when I die, I'm going to be removed from this world, and I'm going to live over in heaven for all eternity. And that's how they understand salvation. Jeff C. Clark says, within this framework, the world is seen as just a really awful place that God hates. And salvation is like God's evacuation plan. Okay, it's like, it's like the earth is like the Death Star, and we have to get off before it blows up. Okay? God's evacuation plan to get his followers out of this yucky world. And, and I just want to say that this view of salvation is not biblical. As we've discussed in the past, this view of salvation is actually rooted in a common heresy in the early church called Gnosticism. Now, the Gnostics taught that the material world is evil, right? And our, our bodies are evil, and the world... Did I just turn off my mic? <laughs> that, that the, um, did I? Did I turn it off? Yeah. That one is bad. <laughs> <laughs> material things are evil. <laughs> 
I'm going to use this instead. Sorry. I broke it. <laughs> so the Gnostics taught that the material world is evil. Our bodies are evil. The, the, the world is evil. Everything is evil. Um, and, and the important part of us that matters is our immaterial soul. And so soul, good, right? Body and all matter, evil. And so then this, this body becomes just a temporary home and this earth just becomes this place we're just kind of passing through. There's even a song written about that. This world is like my temporary home. It's bad theology. But, um, and so if that's true, then I don't need to take care of my body because it's going to be thrown in the garbage anyway, right? I can eat whatever I want. I can eat fried Twinkies all day long, right? Like we served it at family festival. <laughs> Yeah, I don't need to care about the environment, right? I don't need to care about the poor. I don't need to advocate for justice. I don't have to do much of anything, really. I just enjoy myself because God's going to tear it all down anyway. Right? He's going to burn it all up. Why should I care? You ever lived in a rented house that you know doesn't belong to you anyway? And you're like, you don't care if you put a hole in the wall. That's just landlord's problem, right? Or, if, or, or, or a place that's going to be destroyed anyway, like, right? Why should I care? But the Bible teaches very, very clearly that our bodies and the earth are not destined for destruction, but for restoration. For restoration, and there's a big difference. God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in it, including us. And what did God say? It is good, right? But see, here's the thing. After we sin, God did not say, it's evil. He didn't turn around and say, it's bad, it's evil. The world has been corrupted by sin, but it is still good, right? It is broken. It is damaged. It may be overrun by evil, but it won't be thrown away. It is not broken beyond repair. It is still good, and its beauty will be restored. Stanley Grenz says that God promises to make all things new, not to begin anew. Okay, there's a difference. Do you see the difference? God's plan has been and always will be centered in the redemption and the restoration and the renewal of this broken world and make it into the place where we are going to live for all eternity. This is going to be our home in a city that John referred to as the New Jerusalem. And in Romans 8.19, Paul explains this. He says, the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, subjected to corruption, subjected to sin, subjected to brokenness, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Creation is going to be liberated from bondage and decay, not destroyed. Creation will be brought into freedom and glory, and this is going to happen as the children of God are revealed, as we are restored to the image of Jesus Christ, as we are restored, all creation is going to be restored, not apart from us, but with us and through us, because God has always intended for us to join in his life and join in his work. The gospel is not about evacuation. It's about restoration. 
And when you realize that God's plan for making all things new begins with you, begins with you, that the gospel is is about how God rescues and restores people, people. Then the words, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. In other words, now is the day of restoration. That begins to mean something, right? Today is the day that God rescues you from your sins. Today is the day that God rescues you from death for Christ suffered for your sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God, 1 Peter 3.18. Today is the day that God restores you to wholeness. Today is the day that God lifts your shame. Today is the day God heals you from your past. Today is the day that God takes everything about you that is broken, everything that you hate about yourself, Every wrong that has ever been done to you, every pain, every loss, every dark and ugly thing. And today is the day that God begins to make you new, make you beautiful, make you strong, make you holy. Today is the day God makes you his son, his daughter, his bride, his ambassador, his heir, his church. Today is the day that God makes you his Now is the day of your salvation. Oh, and when I hear that, man, I just, I get goosebumps. I get shivers. I think, oh, what a good day. God wants to do all that now, today. Now is the day of my restoration, my salvation. And so if today is the day of salvation, then, okay, what do I do? How am I supposed to respond? Well, in the first sermon of the series, we learned that what moves us from waiting on God to receiving from God is faith. In Matthew 9.27, Jesus says, according to your faith, let it be done to you. Hebrews 11.1 tells us that faith is what the ancients were commended for. God often responds not to your need, but to your faith. And faith isn't a matter of just what you believe up here, but by what, your, what those beliefs move you to do. Faith is physical. Faith is a physical response. It's a decision. It's a choice to trust in Jesus over your own senses to leads you to some kind of action. Okay, so, so, so if what moves me from waiting to receiving is faith, and faith is some kind of action then what is my first act of faith? What is that first thing that I'm supposed to do? Right? And the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us that when the time has come, he says the time has come in in Mark. He says the kingdom of God has come near. What's the first thing he tells us to do? He says, repent. That is our first act of faith, is to repent. And believe this gospel, this good news. In Acts 3.19, when Peter's preaching to the crowds, he says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and refreshing may come from the Lord. When you repent, repent and turn towards Jesus, your sins are wiped out and your times of refreshing begin to come. So what does it mean to repent? It means to simply to change your mind, to change your direction, to turn from one way of life and begin to go in a different direction. 
to turn from sin, to turn towards God. So what does that look like? What do I, how am I supposed to find, if I know that my first action, of my act of faith is to repent and I'm turning, then what does that turning look like? The first thing is that you humble yourself. There's an, when you understand who Jesus is, you come to God humbly. Because you recognize your sin, you recognize his holiness, you recognize his love, his goodness, his majesty, his power, and you say, wow, I have been doing this all wrong. There's a moment where you stop trusting in your own wisdom and your judgment. There are some people who just always think that they're right, right? And everybody else is wrong, and they just think, I just trust my gut, and they trust that over everything else. And to be a follower of Jesus means you have a very healthy skepticism about your own intelligence, your own wisdom, just how smart and how wise and good you are. You say, you know what? I need to take the posture of a learner because I am not God. And if I were God, whew, what kind of world would we live in? It would be horrible. So first thing is just humble yourself. It's a posture. It's an attitude. The first sign of repentance is that you are humble. And the Lord says in his word that God opposes the proud. He actually opposes you when you're proud and prideful. But he lifts up the humble. The second thing is once you humble yourself, you come to God. The second thing about repentance is you start to obey Jesus. You relate to Jesus not just as a savior, not just as a friend, but as Lord, as king. In 1 John 2, 3, John writes, we know that we have come to know him. We know that we have come to know Christ if we keep his commands. If you're not interested in keeping Christ's commands, you haven't, you don't know him. I don't care what you say, right? You don't know him if you're not interested in keeping his commands. And 1 John 5, 3, 4 says, this is love for God, to keep his commands. It's right there. It's black and white. This is not open to interpretation. This is love for God, to keep his commands. And then we are reassured. John writes, his commands are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. Because everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. So most commonly we understand this idea of obeying Christ and repentance to be turning away from sin, but it goes beyond that. It goes to, to begin to take Jesus' commands and his vision for the world as your own, which needs to the, leads to the next expression of repentance, of repentance, which is to start engaging the world, to start engaging the world. What that means is that you engage the world with Christ-like Holy Spirit and power love. You completely embrace this, this posture in life where life is not about you. Because that's what the rest of the world thinks, right? And so I'm going to turn from that philosophy, the pursuit of the American dream, the pursuit of my own happiness, and I am going to turn from that and say, it's not about me. I am a servant. I live to serve. I live to love. We understand our salvation is not a matter of evacuation, but of restoration. First, my restoration, and then the world's restoration. And then lastly, if I have been repenting and walking with God, I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to enjoy this journey. We experience God's pleasure as we follow Christ. Our happiness can I just say this? Your happiness in Christ is directly proportionate to the degree of your surrender. 
As you surrender to Jesus, so will your happiness be. In John 15, 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And he says, Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And then he says, I've told you this so that your joy may be complete. Your joy may be full, so that my joy may be in you. Why do you think that Jesus asks us to obey him and follow him? Because it feeds God's ego? No. Because that is where you find joy, is being in the center of God's will. So I want to, uh, we have a few minutes left, but I want to share a testimony with you, a video. And at first it may seem like it's about something else. But I want you to, to listen and, 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 and hear this gospel of salvation, of restoration, not evacuation, but restoration. And I want you to hear the echoes of God's truth in this story. Okay? And this is a, about a, a man um, who was a foster kid in the foster system um, and found great healing through the love of, of one particular person. So, you turn the lights out. I tried to kill myself with a bottle of pills. And the fact of the matter is, I trusted no one. And looking back, I guess, how could I? From the time my parents left me, to the time another foster kid raped me, to the time I was bullied so bad, I genuinely could not fathom a world where I could trust anybody. So fast forward, here I am, 14 years old, and entering my umpteenth foster home. I was a pro, a veteran at this whole sort of getting kicked out of one home, moved to the next. You meet these people who were like literally complete and total strangers 10 minutes ago who are now apparently your mom and dad. You know, kids don't take candy from strangers, just move in with them. <laughs> so I'm sitting in the van in the driveway of this next home and that's when I see Rodney. He's standing up there on the front porch and immediately I notice this is a large fella. He's six foot five, he's 350 pounds, and as a 14-year-old boy, I couldn't help but notice, when he's turned to the side like that, he's shaped like a lowercase b. It's amusing now, but in the moment, it was tactical. Maybe that's how I could get kicked out of this home. Maybe I could get under his skin about his weight. So I move in with him, I'm being obnoxious, I'm being ungrateful, I'm being just downright rude and mean, I'm setting things on fire, and three years later, I can't shake this guy. <laughs> Rodney won't kick me out. So I step up my game. I go to the local bank in town, I open up a checking account. I put about 90 bucks in there. Then I proceed to write $10,000 worth of checks. Obviously, checks bouncing one after the next after the next. One check that bounced was for my car insurance. I'm going down the road speeding Stillwater, Oklahoma, 88 miles an hour. No car insurance, no driver's license. I get pulled over, handcuffed, thrown in the back of a cop car, and sent to jail. I call Rodney. I'm like, Rodney, I'm in Stillwater. I'm in jail. I'll tell you the whole thing when you get here. 
Can you please come bail me out tonight? He said, I will come bail you out, but not till tomorrow. Rodney frustratingly believed sometimes one of the most loving things you could do for a kid was allow them to sit in either the success of their wonderful choice or the stupidity of their foolish choice. Next morning, he comes, bells me out, exactly as promised. We have a long, very awkward car ride home. No one says anything. We get back to the house. He's like, we need to sit down and talk. And I knew this moment had finally come. So Rodney, his wife, sit me down to give me the talk I've had a dozen times. He looks in my eyes and says, son, you can keep causing problems. You can keep trying to mess up. You can keep pushing us away. You can keep trying to get us to kick you out of here, but you've got to get it through your thick head, son. We don't see you as a problem. We see you as an opportunity. And in that moment, all my skepticism came to the surface. And I thought, what a cheesy, stupid thing to say to a 17-year-old kid. But then I was overwhelmed with the reality that this guy actually meant it. He didn't see what I was, what was on the surface. The obnoxious kid, the ungrateful kid, the kid getting suspended. He saw what I could be. It was genuinely my turning point. Statistically, I am supposed to be dead, in jail, or homeless. But because of one caring adult. I'm not a statistic. Every kid is one caring adult away from being a success. Every child who winds up doing well has had at least one stable and committed relationship with a supportive adult. My friend and mentor Reggie Joyner taught me to think about it this way. In this jar are 936 marbles. Each one of these marbles represents a single week from the birth of a kid until that kid turns 18 years old. So if you know a nine-year-old, you've only got 468 marbles or weeks, however you want to look at it, remaining. You know a 16-year-old? You got 104 marbles remaining. Right here, we are looking at time. In fact, you're looking at all the time or all of the weeks you have left to influence this kid, this kid, or this kid before they turn 18 and begin making critical life decisions without your presence. The difference between a statistic and a success story is you. you see the gospel? Did you see the gospel in that? That God is the one who saves and that salvation is not about getting out of here. It's not an evacuation plan. Salvation is about our restoration. God does not see people as a problem, but as an opportunity. And what makes the difference between success and a failure for a kid is the presence of a stable, 
loving adult. We can kick and scream against God and keep screwing up, but God never gives up on us, and he promises to never leave or forsake us. You can be secure in God's love for you. And then we begin to reflect this unconditional love to others. It's Christ in us. It's that love in us that is the hope of the world. If we could just love like that. That is the hope of the world. That is how this world gets restored. Now look, today's message is not about youth ministry. But I do need to stress how important this is. We invest a lot of time and manpower and resources in our children's and youth ministry. And the best days of our church have been the times when our children's and youth programs are thriving. They are the harvest field that is right in front of us. And, and those jars are getting emptier and emptier as the years go on. And we have fewer and fewer weeks with those kids. Now is the time. Now is the time. Today is the day to invest in our youth. Guys, we can't wait any longer. You can't say, I'll help next year. Because another 26 marbles will be gone. Right? There are only so many marbles left. And for our 16-year-olds in our youth ministry, we only got 104 left. Right? And so we need the whole church to get behind our commitment to young people. That is why we need to be okay with changing the format of what we do, our programs, worship service, the the decor, whatever, in order to grow young as a church, to be a place where young people feel like, yeah, I could could see myself here. We need to do that. We need to, yes, I'm not saying that people who who prefer something more traditional are not important. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying we have this little window of time, and that is so important. We need to be able to, to set aside our preferences for their sake. Right? And I want to encourage you not to wait until your life is perfectly ordered the way you want it before you invest in kids, whether it's your own kids or other people's kids. Uh, that, that day when your life is perfectly ordered is never going to come. And meanwhile, our children are growing up really fast, and they're going to be gone in a moment. But back to our main message. And that is that the gospel, that salvation is not about evacuation, but about restoration. It's about transformation. God is interested in your present life. Yes, there is a glorious future that awaits us, but God has so much for you right now and today. So don't wait until your life is just the way you want it, until all your doubts are answered, before you begin to give more of your life to God, because that day is never going to come. And some of us have been waiting for God to speak to us. And some of us have been waiting for God to reveal himself to us somehow, to answer our prayers or to, or to heal us or restore us in some way. And we've, been, and we've been suggesting through this series that maybe if that's you and you're waiting, maybe you're waiting unnecessarily. Maybe it's not you that's waiting on God. Maybe God is waiting on you. And say, I am ready to release my full blessings and power in, and love in your life. It's you. It's you that I'm waiting on. And so that first act of faith is repentance. You've got to change somehow. You've got to change your mind, change your loyalty, turn towards God, humble yourself, obey Christ, engage the world around you, join Jesus in mission. And then when you do that, when you repent, When you take action, you will experience God's pleasure. 
the same joy that Jesus experienced as he obeyed his Father, he says that joy can be ours too. And our joy will be full. It will be complete. And so when you see this sin and brokenness around you, do you see problems or do you see opportunities? Do you, do you tend to turn away from difficult people and difficult problems or do you turn towards them? What did Jesus see? Did Jesus turn away or did he turn toward? And, and some of us may say, well, I, I, I don't feel called by God. I, I don't feel called by God to, to really get, get behind all these things. And, and William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, he responded this way to people who say that. I'm, I don't feel called. He says, not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Put your ear down to the burdened and agonized heart of humanity. Listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. Then look Christ in the face, whose mercy you have professed to obey, and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. Every single person here is called to get behind what God is doing, to join him in this amazing plan of restoration. There's not a single person who has heard the voice of Jesus and not heard that call. Because that is what it means to be a Christian. And so... I just want to say, for those who, are, who have been here a long time and for those who are guests with us today, let me tell you something about our church. Our church is about restoration. We are about restoring people here. Are you in? Do you want to be a part of that? And so, for some of you today, your heart's cry is, Lord, I need that. I need to be transformed. Lord, let this be the day of my salvation, my transformation. Let this be my new start. And for some of you, it's like, Lord, let me participate in this grand plan of, of salvation for the world. Today, I'm going to offer my life to that cause. That is what we're about as a church. And I hope that comes across loud and clear in all the things that we do. This is not a club. <laughs> Never has been. It's even more than a family. We are a people on mission. And all the sacrifice and all the service, everything that we do, man, it is worth it. Now is the day of salvation. Are you in?